0: It is so good to see all of you here this morning. We have waited a long time. Last week, it was great uh, to see so many faces here this morning, to see even more. And we think that as the uh, weeks um, move into months, uh, we will find um, that we will be filling up the chairs that are in here. So we're so glad that you're here with us. Uh, Last week we began a new sermon series in the book of Esther, and uh, today we're going to be continuing that. We're going to be covering this for several weeks, and it is really an apropos study. When you think about the things that we're facing today as a nation, uh, to say nothing of our own individual uh, issues and problems and struggles that we have, this particular book is perhaps um, the the best book to be studying right now in the Bible because it deals with the providence of God. In fact, last week we, we said that the big idea for this series is that God is in control that he is in control and he will accomplish amazing things through those who dare to risk it all. And that's what this book is about. It's, it's about a, a young woman who dares to risk it all for God and for her people. And divine providence is one of the key themes throughout this entire book and We're going to come back to that in just a minute, but for those of you that weren't here last week or weren't able to tune in on Facebook Live, let me give you a brief recap of chapter one. Uh, we're introduced to an individual named King Ahasuerus, otherwise known as King Xerxes. Some of you may be familiar with that name. But King Ahasuerus is the king of Persia, and he throws this huge party that lasts for six months And at the end of that party, he throws another party that lasts an entire week. And on the last day of that celebration, he summons his wife to come before him in a way that could only be described as lurid. He wants to put her on display for everyone to see. Well, of course... Queen Vashti, not wanting to be degraded in this way, refuses to come. She says no. So the king flies off the handle, he enacts a law that, among other things, removes Vashti as queen and sets the stage for another to take her place. And before we we look at chapter 2, I want to go back to this word providence because we need to understand it as we look through the book of Esther and as we try to make sense of the world in which we live. The word providence uh, comes from the Latin word providentia. It's a compound word made up of the prefix pro, uh, meaning before, and videntia, which comes from another word, a verb called videre, meaning to look ahead or to see. Some of you probably have figured it out already, but this is where we get the word video from. Together, these words mean to see before or to look ahead. But but we have to understand something providence from God's perspective, when we talk about the providence of God, we're saying much more than God merely knows the future. We're saying he determines it. Now, you want to find yourself in a nice debate, go to a college campus sometime and debate, you know, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, you know, talk about fate, you know, and free will and and all of that. But I think that as we look at the book of Esther, we're going to see things we just cannot ignore. And I, for one, am thankful. And I don't know, I hope to come back to that. But perhaps this might help. I I worked this week, actually it was last week, came up with a definition of providence, of divine providence that I'd like to give you. Um, I'm going to put it up on, on the screen. Divine providence is the continuing and often unseen activity of God that governs and sustains the universe, directs the course of history and human events so as to bring to completion the purposes for which he created the world. That is not a bad definition if I don't mind saying so myself. Um, I, I mean, that packs a wallop. So it's not just that God sees what's going to happen. He orchestrates things to bring about his will and his purposes. And so this morning, we're going to clearly see that God uh, is working out his plan to bring about His purposes. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, your word to us, uh, for the opportunity that we've had to worship you already this morning. Lord, we want to give attention to your word. Holy Spirit, we want you to be our teacher and our guide. Encourage us in our journey of either knowing you more or or just in coming to faith to you initially. Lord, um, we want to know you. We want to know what you're really like. We want to know what you require of us. And Father, we want to respond in humble obedience. And so, Lord, we thank you. As we look at your word this morning, speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs eighteen twenty-two. one of my favorite verses. I'm only gonna read part of it. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. I know that to be true. Because I found a good thing when I found my wife. And in even saying that, it, it makes it sound like, man, I'm, I'm a good looker. Uh, I, I found her, and really, it's more like God laid her in my lap. It, 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 because I spent 32 years looking for Miss Wright, and I struck out. But in God's good timing, he brought her into my life. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of guys who wouldn't know a good thing if it was staring them in the face. And oftentimes, they, they don't realize what they have until they lose it. And sometimes, even then, they don't realize it. Such is the case with King Ahasuerus. Chapter 2 begins with these words, after these things, after these things. What things? How much time has actually passed? Well, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 3, you're going to see that we begin the story in the third chapter year of King Ahasuerus's reign. So keep that in mind. If you turn over to chapter 2 and you look at verse 16, we learn that Esther went into the king in the seventh year of his reign. So that means four years have passed. But if you subtract the year of preparation that is spoken of, In these verses, which we'll get to, you really have three years. So there's a three-year time frame that has passed since Vashti was dethroned. Now, during this time, and this is where the words after these things are so important. During this time, Ahasuerus was at war. He went to war with the Greek city-states, specifically Athens uh, and Sparta. You've heard of the, the 300 Spartans. Well, the, 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 the Greeks were defeated there at the Battle of Thermopylae and later Xerxes, Ahasuerus, sacked Athens, burned it to the ground, something that he later regretted doing. But then sometime later, he suffered a devastating naval defeat at the, uh, at the Battle of Salamis, which ended any chance of him ever conquering Greece. And he was actually sent home. It it was so bad that they sent him home home with a a portion of his army. And by the time the army got back, there was hardly anything left. So you have to put yourself in his shoes. What is he thinking? What is he feeling as he returns home to Susa? So let's take a look. Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. I want you to notice two things here. Number one, first, the king's anger abated. Three years will do that to you. At least you would hope to think that after three years' time, he would have cooled down a little bit. He, he was extremely upset before. And by the way, lesson there, don't make important decisions when you're angry because chances are they're going to be bad ones. But now he's back and he, he, his anger has abated. Secondly, he remembered Vashti. He was home licking his wounds and he remembered pre-war Susa. He remembered his wife, the queen He remembered what she did. He remembered what was done to her. And and again, he's not remembering in a state of anger. You have to remember how he is feeling after his humiliating defeat. And it's clear from this verse and what follows that the king was weary and lonely. He wasn't interested in a one-night stand. He wasn't interested in a temporary distraction. He actually wants somebody who would console him. Someone who would care for him, who would genuinely care about him, that he could bear his soul to. That's what it means is he remembered Vashti. And so we see that the king needs a wife. Another lesson for you husbands that are here. When you experience defeat or feel discouraged or are depressed, you don't need a diversion. You don't need a cheap thrill. You don't need to be pursuing some pleasure. That's not what you need. You don't need a harem. What you need is a companion, a best friend, a confidant, a helper, a wife. Yours, by the way. Just needed to make sure that was clear. Sometimes a guy can use a little help finding a good wife. Um, I certainly needed it. In fact, I, I met my wife on a blind date. And um, it was set up by somebody who I worked with who came to me one day and, and, and said, hey, uh, I know this Christian girl. You would love to meet her, whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, Christian girl. I heard that before. Um, so, but she gave me the number. I worked up enough courage. I called. Make a long story short, we ended up having a five-hour coffee date um, because And I told her this on the phone, I don't have enough money to take you out to dinner. (laughs) And she came anyway, believe it or not, it's amazing. Um, And I picked her up in a $100 automobile that blew one quart of oil a week. And she got in the car and we had a five hour coffee day and we both knew. we Didn't say anything to each other then, but there we were, our second date, was in a hospital visiting friends who were in a bad car accident. Um, seven weeks later we were engaged six months later we were married so sometimes you need some help and I got some help from, from somebody and, and in God's perfect timing that verse he who finds uh, a wife finds a good thing is so true for me so let's take a look here King Ahasuerus obviously needed some help as well that's why I mentioned that story in verse 2 it says, "Then the king's young men who attended him said, "Let beautiful young virgins' virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the providences of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hagai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women." Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who the one, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. <laughs> I wonder why. This pleased the king, and he did so. So the attendants said, all right, let's find the king a wife. Let's have a beauty pageant. Let's let's gather all the beautiful women from all over the, all 127 provinces, from from North Africa to India. And let's get the the cream of the crop, the best of the best. Let's round them up and, and, and bring them to Susa for the king. Now, we don't know how many women this involves, but the Jewish historian Josephus suggests that there were 400 Which is not inconceivable. You think about King Solomon. He had a thousand women. So imagine what it would have been like for you, for your parents, or as a parent in a home where your young daughter or daughters perhaps were taken forcibly against their will to be made a part of the royal harem imagine what it did to the families i like what warren wearsby said i mean i don't really like it but what he said i think is spot on he said this i wonder how many beautiful girls hid when the king's officers showed up to abduct them Heartbroken mothers and fathers, no doubt, lied to the officers and denied that they had any virgin daughters. Perhaps some of the girls married any available man rather than spend a hopeless life shut up in the king's harem. Once they had been with the king, they belonged to him and could not marry. And if the king ignored them, they were destined for a life of loneliness shut up in a royal harem. Is it honorable? Perhaps. Does it result in happiness? No. And so they began looking for the next Miss Persia. Look at verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. The son of Jer, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for they had ni- she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and the young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So the section starts out with, now there was a Jew. And we're introduced to Mordecai and to Esther. Mordecai is a caring, wise, godly man who has been living here in Susa ever since his great-grandfather Kish had been carted off into captivity by the Babylonians. And he brought up Hadassah Um, he brought her up even though she was his cousin because her mother and father died. So she was a Jew and she was an orphan. And so this tells you something about Mordecai. Her Hebrew name, Hadassah, means myrtle. Her Persian name, Esther, means star. Some people might say that Uh, That's fitting because she's kind of like the star of the show here. I would beg to differ because I believe God is the star of the show. He is that author whose name never appears in the play itself, but his fingerprints are everywhere. So Mordecai raises his cousin Esther as his own daughter She was described as lovely and beautiful, with a beautiful figure. But you will see she was also a kind and gracious, trusting and obedient young woman. Verse 8 tells us that she was taken to the king's palace, put into the custody of Haggai, where she won his favor, and he then moved her and all of her attendants to the best place in the harem. Now, we don't know why Mordecai commanded her not to disclose her nationality. But I think we can surmise a, a few things. It's it, Perhaps he thought that the knowledge of her being a Jew might put her in jeopardy. It might be dangerous for her. Perhaps it was because he had God-given foresight to see that Concealing her identity might be advantageous to them down the road, whereas revealing it might um, disqualify her and therefore removing her from, from that position. Whatever the reason is, it was the right call. And we'll see that as the story unfolds. Look at verse 11. It says, every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Parents, can you relate to that? Every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn what has happened to Esther. What has happened to my daughter? He cares about her. He loves her deeply. And he won't rest until he knows that she's okay. That she's safe. And and kids, young people, just because you grow up, just because you move out, just because you get married, doesn't mean your parents stop loving you and caring about you. And in fact, I think as kids get older, parents tend to care more. (laughs) Or at least it appears that way, right? And I think there's a very simple reason for that. See, when you're younger, right, most of the the important decisions are made by mom and dad. But, But as you get older, you begin making more and more of those decisions yourself. And that's where the worry and the panic sets in. That's, that's when the concern really starts to, to, to come out because it's like, I'm not in control here anymore. What if they make a bad decision? What if they mess up their life? What if they marry the wrong person? What if they, it, it, it can eat you alive? Right now, uh, my wife and I, we're kind of going through a little bit of transition with our eldest daughter, Patricia, who, if she's watching, hi. Um, but she's down in South Carolina, and she's, you know, she's been going to school there for a while. But within the last year or so, um, she's also gotten in an apartment. Well, that tells you something, doesn't it? Tells me she's not planning on coming home, because when you have an apartment, you have to pay for it 12 months out of the year. You need a job, and if you have a job, you just can't get up and go and do. So anyway, my mind is racing. And then several weeks ago, some of you may have heard, my eldest daughter, Patricia Lee, got engaged. And so um, she is aiming to get married sometime next year. I'm trying to push it off to December 31st, um, if it has to be next year. Um, don't think that'll happen. But, but that raised a whole new set of concerns and questions as a parent. In fact, um, her... Um, As you would say from down south, her beau came up with her a few weeks ago, and uh, and we went frisbee golfing and spent the entire afternoon um, in an inquisition-style interview. (laughs) It was wonderful. Uh, No, it really wasn't that bad. But but you know, I had never thought about. Well, I had thought about it, but. It just seemed to come out of the blue and I had to I had to express my my concerns I had to ask questions I I wanted to hear the answers why? Because I love her I care about her and although I can't make this decision for her I want to try the best that I can to ensure she doesn't marry a lemon you know that, 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 that she lives the kind of life that I believe God wants her to live and And so I I can relate to Mordecai. I understand that level of concern. So with with all the contestants in place, we come to, to the most important part. Let the auditions begin. Let's look at verse 12. Now... When the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for the women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, She was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So let me give you the rules of the contest here. First, you had to be a young virgin female and a beautiful one at that. Second, you had to have a year of beautification. A year. Gentlemen, You think it takes your wife a long time to get pretty, to go on a date. Imagine having to wait a year. Six months of oil of Olay and six months being aromatized. I mean, what can you do to a body to make, you know, a whole year? It's beyond my imagination. But, but they pampered her. They got her ready. And only after a year of that was she ready to go in to the king. And then the third thing is you can take whatever you want from the harem to win the king's heart. And then the fourth thing is you had to be patient. You had to wait your turn and hope that he would pick you. Now, as I read this story, to me, it feels like a reality show. Uh, if, 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 it, you know, it's like, who will get the rose? I mean, the crown. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of a vibe to me. And, and this verse, these verses highlight the, the atrocity of polygamy. The inhumanity of polygamy. Every night... The king had a new partner. And when your audition was over, you went back to the second harem and awaited tribal council. Except here, the only vote that counts is the king's. It was, the, the harem system was horribly demeaning and degrading. These women were held as captives as concubines to be used to satisfy the lustful cravings of the king. And finally, the time came for Esther to spend a night with the king. Verse 15. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Verses tell us a lot about Esther's character. Clearly, you can see that she trusts God and those that God has put in authority over her. First, Mordecai, and then Haggai, And she's winning favor of everyone that she comes in contact with. The scripture mentions that I think three times here that she wins the favor of everyone around her, including the king. Now, again, another important, important thing to note here, a lesson, especially for you ladies. I know you're familiar with this. You've heard it, but it is so true. Beauty is only skin deep. And you can spend an awful lot of time trying to make the skin look beautiful. Spend a whole year if you want, but at some point the wrinkles are going to come. The skin's not going to look like it used to look. You know, the the, the grass withers, the flower fades, all flesh is like grass, the scripture says. We We can stave off the eventual demise of these physical bodies, but it's going to happen we would be better off spending time developing the inner beauty of the heart. Esther possessed this inner beauty, and it drew people to her. Ladies, this is is what Peter meant in 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, when he said this, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And it wasn't because she was beautiful with a good figure. These were 400 of the most beautiful, the most voluptuous women in the world. Something else attracted the king. And he made her his queen. (laughs) And then he threw another party. This guy likes parties. Which leads us now to the incident at the gate. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate now this phrase uh, when the virgins gathered together the second time it begs the question when was the first time we really don't know Um, we, we don't read about that We're not exactly sure what this phrase means, but it it could mean that this was like the final viewing of all the runners-up, that they may have paraded all the runners-up, you know, so that everybody could see, wow, look how gorgeous they are, and then they would bring out Esther. Ah, yes, head and shoulders above the rest. It could be be that, but it could simply mean that it's a second ingathering of beautiful virgins. Uh, As beautiful as Esther was, as lovely as she was to look at, um, let's not be under uh, any false notions that the king all of a sudden was going to become a one-woman man. So they were probably still gathering people together. And the scripture says that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Now this phrase appears several times in the book and it seems to have an official connotation that Mordecai had some sort of official capacity. The king's gate was the equivalent to uh, our courts of law. It's where important business was transacted. Some think that Mordecai served as a judge and, and that he had a position of honor and authority. Now verse 20 is another verse for all the kids and young adults here this morning. I want you to listen to it. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Where was she now? She was in the palace. She was the queen. And yet the scripture says here that Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. What this tells me, what this tells you, young people, is that you never outgrow honoring your father and your mother. It's a commandment. You don't outgrow it. She had a new husband, she had a new home, but that did not change who Esther was. She continued to respect and honor Mordecai, her adoptive father. Um, and, and maybe I can rephrase it another way. This command to honor your father and your mother doesn't come with an expiration date. Now, I'm not I understand that when you know, a husband leaves his wife you know, and cleaves to his wife, they will become one flesh and, and that, that is the new home, the new unit and that's where your first allegiance lay but the principle here is that you continue to honor your father and your mother. It doesn't, it, you know, you could be 50 years old, 60 years old, you're, you're, you still do it and Esther is a perfect picture of this, isn't she? That here she, I mean, she so, so easily could have been, I'm the queen. I don't have to listen to anybody. Maybe the king. But that's not her attitude. Verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, uh, this is a side note I was actually going to get to later, but the gallows is not the same gallows as you think of in the in the Old West. You know, hang them high, you know, the rope and all that kind of stuff. No, this meant impaling. So the gallows were, you, you had this big pole, a spike, and they impaled you on it. So when sitting at the king's gate, Mordecai uncovers this plot to kill the king. Now, here here's where... Again, divine providence, right? Here's here's Mordecai sitting at the king's gate at just the right time, and overhears a plot to kill the king. And it just happens that Esther is there, and it just happens that, or excuse me, it just happens that Esther is now queen, and it just happens that he's able to tell her, and she tells the king, and the would-be assassins are then caught and killed. And it just happens that Mordecai and his good deed get recorded in a book. It's gonna become very important as we progress through this story. And because of that, it results in him being vindicated, it condemns a wicked villain, and it brings salvation to all of the Jews. What an amazing coincidence. If you think that, you're missing the point. God has his hand on all of these events. God is working out his plan for his purposes. Now, there are many important lessons in this chapter. We've covered several of them. But let me me just leave you with these three. First, God is in complete control. You have got to be absolutely convinced of that if you're gonna make it through life. You really are. Because if God is not in control, then things are going to appear to be out of control. And when things appear to be out of control, what do we do? We try to get control. And, and, and you know how, where that leads. We need to understand that no matter what virus we're facing, no matter what social injustice there is, no matter what your husband or your wife does to you, no matter how your kids talk to you, no matter if you lose your job or you lose your nest egg or, or whatever happens to you physically in life, God is in control. What comfort that brings What comfort has it brought in my life through all the twists and turns and difficulties of my life to know that nothing takes God by surprise. That he, like a master gardener with with fertilizer, and you know what fertilizer is, right? It's poison. But in the hands of a master gardener, he knows exactly how much to sprinkle, how much to put out so that it doesn't kill the stuff. God is in complete control. Second, God delights in using unlikely candidates for his purposes. Esther's a prime example of this. Who would have thought this young Jewish girl living in exile would be raised up to become a type of Christ? One who foreshadowed the coming of our great God and Savior because God raised her up for the salvation of her people. God delights in using unlikely candidates. And guess what? We all qualify. That's good news. God can use us. And that leads me to the third lesson. That is God invites us to join him in writing the script. What an amazing privilege and a responsibility that is for us. Even though God is the sovereign Lord over the entire universe, he invites us to write the script with him, to live by faith in humble obedience. So as I close out the the message this morning, let me ask you a question to think about this week. What? Area or areas in your life do you need to trust God more for? What areas of your life do you need to obey him in? What is he saying to you? And how do you need to respond? My prayer is that we would all have a heart like Esther. That we would be willing to risk it all to allow God to use us for his glory and for the good of his people. Next week, Eric is going to introduce us to our antagonist in the story, so you're not going to want to miss that. But let's close our time in prayer. Father God, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you to hear your word, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for teaching us, for guiding us, and um, directing our lives. Lord God, we thank you that you are not a God who is capricious. You are not a God who uh, doesn't know the end from the beginning. You are not... um, a God who can't do anything about our situation, but Lord, that you are omnipotent, you are omniscient, you know all things, you can do all things, and you are altogether good. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can trust you with our lives, and we look forward to hearing the rest of this amazing story in the book of Esther. In Jesus' name, amen.